You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're delighted to welcome you to the first Behind the Headlines discussion of the autumn and of the new academic year. Tonight, we're thrilled to have a distinguished panel of speakers bringing together diverse viewpoints and disciplines from across the university and beyond. The theme for tonight's discussion is artificial intelligence, and uh, we'll see the discussion delving into many of the questions on all of our minds when we consider the opportunities and challenges we face in this digital world. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, Trinity's Arts and Humanities Research Institute. For those of you new to our very popular Behind the Headlines discussion series, uh, through this forum we seek to draw on the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities while adopting an interdisciplinary approach with our colleagues in order to provide a space for respectful public discourse which embraces nuance and combats simplification. Last year, we dealt with many contentious topics in the public debate and uh, in the media, including abortion, the T word, Trump, the B word, Brexit and and Syria and migration. Tonight's discussion is something we've been considering for a while uh, and is aimed at focusing the debate around the ethical and human impact of artificial intelligence in our society. Uh, Considering big data, automation, artificial intelligence, digital manipulation and other opportunities and challenges we face, we have are privileged to have with us a fantastic lineup of speakers to address these themes from their own experience uh, uh, in their various disciplines. So let me begin by introducing our fantastic panel of uh, uh, speakers. First up tonight is Professor Vincent Wade, who's the director of the ADAPT Centre here at Trinity. Uh, Vinnie will be looking at how embedded artificial intelligence is shaping the information that we are offered, the jobs we do, and our perception of the world around us. Our next speaker is from the Irish School of Ecumenics here at Trinity, and she is Professor of Ecumenics, uh, Linda Hogan, who's also the former Vice Provost of Trinity. An expert on ethics, Linda will look at the ethical questions which lie behind the rise of big data, machine learning and artificial intelligence, and which are not deeply considered by those most affected in our society, causing further inequality and injustice. Our third speaker this evening is Lorna Ross, and she joins us from the Group Design Directorate Fjord uh, in Dublin, which sits within the DOC Accenture's Multidisciplinary Research and Incubation Hub. She was one of the pioneering researchers to focus on wearable technologies, and tonight we uh, will be looking at how rather than technology invading our bodies, as forecast in dystopian films and the media, the persistent use of our digital tools is shaping our habits, beliefs and behaviours in unprecedented ways, making us digital beings. Finally, we are privileged to be joined by our Oscar winner and Trinity academic, Anil Corcoran, who is Professor in uh, in Media Engineering uh, and was awarded an Oscar for his work on the creation of tools for digital cinema. Um, For those of you who are new to the Behind the Headlines format, each speaker will have roughly uh, nine minutes to deliver their points. 
We're really looking forward to a lively discussion and there'll be plenty of opportunity for questions following our panellists' contributions. So please turn your phones to silent. And uh, uh, But for any of you who would like to share your views, you can join the conversation on uh, Twitter at the hashtag HubMatters. Um, also, just to remind you that uh, our Behind the Headlines series are available on our website and we podcast everything. Now, join me in welcoming our first speaker tonight, Professor Vinnie Wade. Thank you. So beyond what we programmed, the actual systems were learning um, based on behaviour of us, based on behaviour of uh, physical systems, uh, uh, physical world, and then began to intervene. So it's not about just about, about perceiving and, and, and reasoning, but it's also about acting and changing the world, changing uh, information, changing uh, the way we live. Um, in terms of the technology itself, there are many, many different approaches. But as I said, around about 2010, 11, 12, things really changed because we were able to look at how we could store that information, but how we could reason about it and connect it together. And we began to move from heuristics <coughs> and algorithmic-based approaches to, to data-driven uh, approaches to machine learning. And really that allowed us to build up layers of networks, a bit like the brain, um, and we began to actually try and build these learning networks to really begin to look at what the behavior is. Typically, those networks were actually just mimicking behavior. Um, so they're looking at the inputs and trying to look at the outputs and then trying to provide a map of how we can get from those inputs to those outputs, and then failing and trying and failing and building up these layers. So really, at the end of the day, Deep learning, you know, sometimes called uh, convolution uh, neural networks, are really looking at how we can imitate the inputs and outputs at a global scale. I mean, when Tuberus Lee invented the web, um, it wasn't that the technology was new, we'd already, in fact, his paper on the web got rejected in the first conference, which is a bit embarrassing for that conference. But um, it was rejected. Now, the next year, he, he, he brought it on, in, for that he brought on a demo. And what what Basie was saying was, you can simplify the technology, but as long as it's globally distributed. And with the way the AI kind of follows suit, it's not just um, the algorithm, it's the amount of data that you're working on so you can really begin to reason. Where it's going, we've gone from intelligence uh, image analysis, speech recognition, speech synthesis, intelligence assistance, enhancing biofeedback, data patterns, to really beginning to branch out to all the different areas, um, building up individual applications. Where AI is working very well is in those narrow domains and specific things. Where it's not so good at is general AI, general reasoning about things. Um, some examples in the app center that we're working on, things like digital companions, which is combining speech interaction and digital assistance. It knows about you, it knows about your notifications, it knows about what, who your friends are and so forth, and has a dialogue with you. That's what we're trying to go. No longer, it's not Siri and Katana, which is basically voice based um, um, commands couched in natural language. Whereas, where we're moving to is social media. What we're looking at is being able to support well being, support healthcare, support um, tutoring, if we like. So, that's providing lots of these sort of information streams and lots of ways in which we can present that information to people in a new way. However, the and this is before behind the headlines, there's been a number of headlines in the last couple of years about people expressing real concerns. Elon Musk from Tesla Cars, he pointed out that AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. 
He went further and said it's more of a danger than North Korea. Now, did say that for the summer. <laughs> um, but the, the point being is, well, what is the danger here? Well, there's two forms of danger um, that we do see. The very first one is robots taking over. And in, in, this, in the article, does kind of point out that really, are we just building the superintelligence, so as we call them bootloaders, so that we create the superintelligence which then tells us what to do? Because it's reasoning on a much broader level. Um, it's kind of one uh, digital future, not one that I want to be part of. Um, but it is a situation where AI can take more and more uh, responsibility or more and more, take more and more decisions. And how would it work with us? How would it work um, where it's symbiotic to us? And we need to be able to shape the um, technologies as we go. And so that's why it's too late to stick privacy at the end, or it's too late to stick ethics at the end. You have to do it as part of designing your AI systems. We've begun to work with things like the ethics canvas and so forth to really try and look at how we can shape our engineers and our computer scientists of the future and our data scientists of the future to understand what they're building and what those decisions are. The second one is privacy and trust. Um, we did a kind of a, a, an interesting kind of work that we call it Bigfoot, and we set up a website where any user could come on and log on and, and describe what they, how they think they use uh, social media, how much of themselves are giving away. And then it gets access to perhaps Facebook, whatever your social media is, and then it looks at how you are actually behaving, and it compares the two. And it is remarkable how we perceive ourselves, how we're behaving, versus how we are actually behaving. And how we are behaving online is giving away a lot about us. Um, and that data uh, AI is using to sell you stuff, to, um, it's using it to, to enhance your life, but it also could be used in many, many other ways. And we're not even aware of that. Um, where we've got to put it is, you think you're a dog, but you look at your shadow and you oh, I'm Batman. Because that's your, that's your footprint. Um, so we've got to be looking at what the data says. And this is the second risk. The risk is that these algorithms are very clever and you know, we work on them uh, very hard. But if the data is wrong, or if there's something wrong in the inputs, it doesn't matter. Those, those, those errors are going to be there in the system that we, we generate. So it's not just about how well we develop the, the software, it's also the data that we use, because this is, well, this is data driven. So we have to really begin to look at the overall system and look at what the privacy issues are. And hopefully the discussion will go into a, a number of those. But so, just to sum up then, just some time. Um, you know, AI has phenomenal potential. Um, depending who you're talking to, you know, we'll be having conversations with computers within the next five years, Within the next 25 years, they will be symbiotic. Um, that's what they, you know, the trajectory could be. Um, somebody said, "Well, I'm not having a computer ever be symbiotic." And someone pointed out, "Well, how often do you look at your mobile phone? How often are you? This is an extension of you." Um, and so, but the problem is, we're using language or we're using touch type at the moment. But now we're going to be using voice. Voice being the new media for all computers. And um, moving forward, then we're, we're, we're going to be connected to it directly. So it's very much a case of making it work for us and not us work for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Vinny.
uh, and it's a great pleasure to be here to be part of this uh, conversation. I look forward to the um, discussion later. Um, I suppose the first thing I want to say is that the ubiquity and also the convergence of technologies, together with the speed of their development, really means that many of us are unaware of the depth of their impact and also the ethical challenges that they pose. Now, some commentators warn of a dystopian future with the displacement of humans by superintelligences and the deepening polarization and inequality. Others anticipate a future of greater wealth and opportunity and of significant scientific advances. But whatever the ultimate outcome, what is clear is that the accelerating developments in AI and machine learning will continue to have a fundamental impact on all aspects of our lives and will continue to be deployed in the areas of policing, health, justice, education, business, media and military, as they already are with sometimes dubious and often unanticipated consequences. It's true that automation and AI bring many benefits, particularly benefits of efficiency, consistency, and financial gain. But they also raise fundamental ethical questions about the values that are embedded in machine learning and AI, about the magnification of bias and discrimination, about political manipulation, financial monitoring, and lack of transparency, about the risks of moral decision-making by algorithm. But I want to suggest that it also presents us with an opportunity, an opportunity to consider what values ought to be embedded in the design of AI, in whose interests and for whose benefit is AI deployed, and what kind of regulatory and supervisory structures we need nationally, internationally. So let me say a few words about these interrelated issues because I think they capture some of the concerns that individuals articulate when they think about a future enhanced by the combination of big data, machine learning, and AI. First, what about the values that are embedded in machine learning and AI? Here, I think we need to think both about the development of the technologies and also the contexts in which they're deployed. Like virtually all technological advances through history, AI will create value and cut costs. It will likely redistribute and change the nature of work, and there will be beneficiaries and losers. It will increase the speed and accuracy of diagnostics and personalized medicine. It will offer personalized education, information, and entertainment for those of us who can afford it. But what I want to stress really is that the values that are embedded and replicated in AI are precisely the values that are already operative in our society, not new ones. So the values that a society prioritizes, whether these be wealth accumulation, equality, personal autonomy, the explicit or unacknowledged biases that a society has. For example, assumptions about the links between ethnicity and race or, and social responsibility. The trade-offs a society is prepared to accept. For example, personalization or convenience over privacy. And the inequalities that a society is prepared to tolerate. The values that we already have prioritized are not only embedded but are likely to be replicated and amplified through AI. 
So now I'm not saying that AI doesn't bring with it new challenges and new ethical questions. Clearly it does, and I expect in our discussion we'll talk a lot about this. But at its most fundamental level, I think we need to appreciate that the deployment of self-learning or reflexive algorithms replicate and magnify the values with which a society in with which a society is already structured and they amplify existing patterns of human decision making in a way and this is a glib way of saying it i suppose the only decisions ai makes are those that it is designed to make but what about the values it should that should guide the design and deployment of ai in fact, there's quite a lot of well-developed views on this. But I want to suggest that if we wish to have a change in our values, then we must design for that. The EU's 2015 opinion on robotics and AI makes an unambiguous statement that design and development in this area should respect the fundamental values and rights of autonomy, human dignity, non-discrimination and equality. It also, as is as is its tradition in the EU, adopts the precautionary principle in terms of de design and development and insists on proportionality in terms of risks. And the more recent uh, Asilomar AI principles of 2017 also declare that in terms of research, research in AI should be uh, guided by uh, the beneficial use, the desire for the beneficial use of AI, and that a research culture of cooperation ought to be in, uh, in, in operation. Uh, uh, sorry, a research culture of cooperation ought to be in operation. In terms of the values, it talks about safety and responsibility. And interestingly, these principles insist that designers have responsibility for the moral implications of the use of the systems that they design. They, pr these principles also talk about um, AI designed in a way that's compatible with the values of dignity, cultural diversity, shared benefit, etc. And that there must always ultimately be human control. And this goes to Vinnie's point about uh, this concern about superintelligences. And a lot of the reflection at the moment talks about the fact that we must quickly identify the upper limits on AI now before we have systems that are already developed uh, uh, where, the, where the issue is um, redundant in a way. So there's a reasonable consensus on the values that should guide the design and development of AI, yet there's a fundamental distrust. So why are we so distrustful? Partly, I think, because of a lack of knowledge and understanding, and also the realization after the fact of how ubiquitous and distributed these systems already are. I think that's something that we've only come to realize after the fact. Secondly, I think there's a concern about the preeminent role that for-profit companies and also military play in this industry. And there's also a concern about the concentration of this capacity amongst a small few major players. This is a perception. I'm not sure if it's uh, exactly right. And there's also the opaque nature of the processes themselves, concerns about the black box, that is, the fact that we don't really see and can't replicate the processes by which these decisions are made. So these are things, I think, that make... These are issues that make us rather concerned. But I think 
I'd like to finish on this point, really. We have a number of examples through the 20th century when there was a perception that Pandora's box had already been opened and that ethics could no longer set the framework for technological development, but could only deal with negative consequences after the fact. And I'm thinking especially of the fields of biomedical sciences and also of nuclear energy. Uh, These particularly come to mind. So when we examine, for, for example, the advancements in biomedical ethics since the 1960s, we can see that what was initially what initially seemed like rather abstract principles like human dignity, autonomy, equality, etc., they actually have shaped the regulatory environment and they have been codified in very specific ethical and legal instruments. For example, we have the Helsinki Declaration, which uh, initially was promulgated in 1964 and has been updated since. And that has determined what is acceptable in terms of research on human subjects. And in the 40s and 50s, I like to describe this as this was the Wild West of medical research. Anything went. And we know there were terrible mis- abuses and uh, misuses of the technology in terms of uh, human subjects. But now we have a very robust international system that recognizes that the research imperative can never take precedence over the interests of even the individual research subject. And we have similar international codes in determining the purposes and limits of the ge- on genome research, on the use and reuse and sale of human organs, on reproductive medicine, etc. We have, my point is, detailed and nuanced, content-specific and context-relevant principles and ethical rules and norms that are operative now in a context of technological development where it was felt 30 years ago, really, you know, that this train has left the station. But it hadn't, and it hasn't. I would, could say something similar in relation to nuclear energy and the go- global governance structures that we have now. Okay, they're under strain, but they're there nonetheless. So, so it is, I believe, in the field of AI. We don't yet have uh, enforceable ethical codes or and in international governance solutions to deal with the reality. But I would suggest AI is on this threshold so that it can stay, scale either positively or negatively. We're at, I would think, a moment similar to where we were in the 1960s with biomedical research. And what drove that in the 1960s was researchers and academics and professionals in the field insisting on uh, an uh, an agenda for ethical design and behavior in their field. And Vinnie mentioned the ethics canvas, which is operative in ADAPT, where we have uh, the designers of these adaptive algorithms uh, interrogating the ethical implications of their development while they're doing it. These initiatives need to scale in meaningful ways, I would think, and need a body of industry-accepted ethical standards to give them force. So I titled my brief contribution, Designing an Ethical Future, Can AI Help?, in part because I think it's it's counterintuitive thought. Our conversations tend to cluster around the threats and risks, but what I want to suggest is that 
Although AI creates some new ethical problems, for the most part it requires us to refocus our attention and address the systemic biases, the existing inequalities, the lack of transparencies, the deficit in accountability, all of these concerns that are already there in our society and that will be amplified and exaggerated through AI. So in a sense, AI provides us with a moment of opportunity to remember the risks to a society when democratic principles are sacrificed in the pursuit of efficiency or profit, and also, in particular, I think, an opportunity for us all to, resi to resist the lure of convenience and to engage with the digital revolution as citizens rather than simply as consumers, which we are very wont to do. Thank you very much. Um, so I've, um, I'm going to have to read a lot of this, so forgive me if I'm staring down a lot, because it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a new story. I'm just trying to figure out how to tell. So I recently um, joined Fjord, and I recently moved to work at Accenture at the dock, and um, up until very recently I worked in healthcare. So the AI topic is new for me, so I, I lack maybe the precision and expertise, but what I'm going to try and do is, is pull out a little bit and talk about the kind of enduring behaviors we see around kind of people and tools and how you know we think about we shape our tools and then they shape our behaviors and that's very much a design principle so i'm just going to try and kind of you know offer some insight more, maybe from a more a design lens on this so forgive me for no accuracy um so i used to uh design underwear that was one of my jobs i worked design knickers for pennies and um it's fascinating. Um, I did. It was really interesting. And I, you know, as part of that, I had, you know, I had studied here at the National College of Art and Design, um, and I did fashion and textiles. And I remember um, understanding and kind of researching uh, what was at that point historically called the containment industry. So I don't know how many of you know that traditional kind of corsetry was referred to as containment. Oh, yeah. Which I think I should just stop there. <laughs> the mic, okay? Because that you know enough. That's enough to like take home. Um, but it's just so interesting. So you know this idea that um, the products that it's offer, it offered was a way to shape, particularly the female body, into a really uniform and standard profile, a really uniform and standard kind of trist of beauty in terms of what was considered aesthetically beautiful. So studying this industry, the history of it, there's no comfort or kindness in an industry like that. It was pretty brutal and rigid and unforgiving in terms of what a, the proposition to the user. The individual human experience of the woman largely was irrelevant and irrelevant in the larger kind of context of the pursuit of a collective ideal. Um, I then went on to work for the US military. I worked with a lot of elite soldiers in the States and I realized there when I was working with that kind of user group that the human and our, that realized that the human and our bodies are universally disappointing and inadequate for the things that we wish they could do and the places we want them to go. My job was to build the equipment and this kind of shell that we would house a human in. Um, I knew I not only had to protect them, but make them smarter, stronger, and even braver, and to sustain them in impossible environments doing unfeasible things. That was the, essentially the job description. <laughs> um, then I went to work in healthcare. You see, people really struggle with the relationship they have with their bodies. So a different kind of, kind of 
love-hate relationship, but really profound in terms of what witnessing what happens when people kind of really um, kind of go in, kind of inside their body and consider it. Um, the relationship they have. Essentially, these are bodies that are killing people. I mean, when you're in a healthcare setting, particularly one like Mayo Clinic, where it has a really, you know, people with a lot of kind of really esoteric diseases, um, that their kind of bodies are broken, they're diseased, they're very vulnerable, their identity is really compromised, it really challenges their sense of themselves. Um, and healthcare is a battleground of people fighting with the bodies that are kind of trapped inside. And so, you know, when I think about my career, I've worked always at this kind of intersection of the human technology and science and this kind of collision and the trade-offs between them. For these groups that I mentioned, um, they all see technology through a really different lens. They're unique in how extreme and extraordinary their preferences are. This was something that was said to me about one of the soldiers I worked with. He said, you really have to understand we have extreme and extraordinary preferences. So we're very atypical. For then, any advancement, any scientific breakthrough is embraced not necessarily in a naive way or indeed not necessarily willingly, but as a set of trade-offs and compromises. And so I think for so many user groups, the proposition around any technology comes as a set of trade-offs. It's not black and white. In these settings, our relationship with technology is a lot messier. And I think it's important to think about you know, these atypical contexts and user groups and kind of situations when we consider a technology in terms of where it may enter and where it may find value. Um, it is not black and white. There's no right and wrong in situations like that. I think it's how it's always been. We've always had an irrational relationship with the tools that we shape. And this is, again, a design principle. We make tools, and they inherently represent something that's kind of aspirational, and it's also scary at the same time. And we know how much that as, as we shape tools, they're going to ultimately shape us. They're going to change our behavior. They're going to create new habits. There'll be new rituals. We're going to let go of things. Um, it's interesting, I think, you know, coming into the AI conversation, I should look at my timer, which died, so <laughs> we're here forever. Um, it's, <laughs> so I, someone's going to have to warn three. Okay, great. So it's interesting how, I'm just going to read this, it's interesting how uncomfortable we are talking about advantage, you know, and from a technical perspective, who gets the advantage? It's political, it's a social conversation, yet it's the basis of all the eco our economies, and it's also the basis of our biology having an advantage. So at the dock where I work right now with Accenture or for Fjord, I think the role of design is, you know, and this may sound a bit cliche, but this idea of attempting to humanize the technology that will shape our worlds. Moving from science fiction to social fiction is always really controversial. It's really, really hard to do, but it's where all the important questions get asked, you know, like tonight, like right here. Conversations such as this one are really revolving around issues of access, you know, who gets it, Ownership, who owns it and controls it. Advantage, who gets the advantage. And then equity, where is there equity? Um, a universal truth I learned working in healthcare and with work with the medical profession is never confuse knowledge with understanding. You can know something without fully understanding it. And I found this all the time when I would talk to kind of doctors. I would ask them why they did something, and they would have a reason for it, but it was more about kind of, you know, historically something worked. We just don't know how it works. Um, you can notice, sorry, I think right now we know how to describe the AI systems. We know what they do. We can kind of list the features. I just don't think we fully understand them in terms of what they mean. So just how worried should we be? Um, one thing I think is interesting, I think the, you know, the human brain, we know that we're designed, or the brain's not designed to make us happy, but to keep us alive, right? 
So to that end, it's optimized to recognize threat over opportunity. So we default really frequently into like, oh, my God, this is terrible. So we're talking a lot about threat. That's typical is our brains recognize threat before they recognize opportunity. Humans are increasingly taking their hands off activities. We see this a lot from a design perspective. They're stopping doing things and realizing the burden of managing our digital tools is just impossible. The sensor, the kind of era of sensors, they became cheaper and they got put in everything, right? And so things became aware, which was a kind of raw intelligence. We created so many objects. I mean, I've designed a ton of objects that are kind of aware in their intelligence. Um, what sets, the, sets this technology apart now um, from other technologies and what makes us uncomfortable is not that our AI systems are able to see and they can hear and they can feel, but they can recognize what they see and they can understand what they hear, and they know where they are, and this is very different. It's a different level of intelligence. A few years ago at Mayo, we worked with IBM with the Watson kind of supercomputer, and we were looking at where to fit it in the clinical setting, like where was a place that it could add value. Rather than replacing or displacing humans out of the system, we found that the most effective was in augmenting and enhancing human capacity and amplifying their ability to make decisions faster, with more precision, and with greater confidence. And we call this the confidence to act effect, which was really important. So currently, the big win for AI is going to be in this co-bot space, collaborative bots, right? Um, and it's a warm and fuzzy story, and we can all get behind it because we're all in it, like we're all in the story. However, what we also know is that people traditionally collaborate and, and create despite the tools they're used, they're given, and not because of them. And we see over and over again that tools that standardize process, and this, like, from a design perspective, I've seen this a ton, is when you try and standard, oh, it did work. Okay, it's not working in the background. See, this thing is like smarter than me. Um, so, uh, that was a, on purpose, that was a demo. Um, tools that standardize process um, for reasons of safety and documentation, which we saw a lot in healthcare, all the reasons that you'd standardize things, they limit the user's ability to create value and to input. And so there's a real kind of blind spot. This limiting bias that a lot of technology has is a blind spot in the smart tools, and it ultimately may be the advantage that humans retain. So in summary, from a design perspective, we always say there's this kind of principle again in design, say we don't design for how we are, but how we wish to be. That's what designers, that's the first thing you learn. It's inherently aspirational, it's about the future, and it's also typically optimistic. So it's a powerful tool in terms of trying to think about the future in an optimistic way. It's also rooted in a lot of in empathy, deeply rooted in empathy. And from empathy comes a desire to make other people's experiences better. So what I've learned from working with patients for the last eight years of Mayo, and I think this is a maybe a kind of something we can try to carry into this conversation is don't focus on the loss, uh, but on the possibility. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so about 80% of internet traffic today is video, and about half of the people in the world today own a smartphone. So. It makes sense to start thinking about how much of what you see is real. And what I have to say today is uh, sort of uh, intersects with uh, the other speakers on artificial intelligence, but 
I guess one of my messages is that we're, we're past the point where machines could help us fake things. <laughs> so this is a, a picture that you may have seen. Um, and it's clearly fake because, you know, the dragons are already. Other than that, it's not a bad, not a bad picture, but you wouldn't confuse this with a fake. Or I wouldn't confuse it in real life. Here's another picture. Looks equally fake, fantastic um, picture of apparently a galaxy edge on. The stars look starrier than normal stars. And if I ask you if it's real or imaginary or fake, you might say, well, it's synthesized because it looks too good to be true. But in fact, it is a picture from the Hubble telescope. So the technology can amaze still. Um, there's another picture which is more subtle. If you didn't know anything about this picture, you'd say, well, it looks real. And that's, um, that's Jack Kennedy in the White House. And all these people, you yeah, know, normal people, everybody has roughly the same hairstyle looks right. I'm sure you will notice this is Tom Hanks. And, uh, <laughs> and this is a picture from Forrest Gump. So it's not real. It's not real, but it's still subtle. Right? Here's another shot. Um, I'll, I'll play the footage. So it's a guy in the desert and kicked off because he just fell over and did his shirt. Um, I could tell you it's real. You have no idea whether it's real or not. It looks consistent. You have no context um, to decide one way or the other. And I'm not trying to tell you any other story associated with it. So as far as you're concerned, that's real. And I want you to start thinking about pictures and visuals, perhaps on these funny, this sort of axes, right? That um, perhaps the believability of uh, visual is proportional somehow to the subtlety of the effect that was used. So the more subtle the effect, it perhaps the more believable that the final result is. The more contextually um, joined up the story is with the picture, the more believable the visual is. And uh, certainly the more consistent quality of the elements are, the more believable the shot must be. So whether everything is poor quality, everything is good quality, that helps you think of something as more believable. And, and maybe there is this sort of cutoff point. You have a threshold of, of these features which beyond which things get believable. And at some point, you know, you don't care what anybody tells you that what you've seen must be true. And this is possible today because of the art and science of a discipline called compositing. And I thought I'd give you a taste of what that discipline could do what it involves today. And first of all, you have to understand that pictures are just numbers. Right? And these numbers, every, every picture is made up of the picture elements. And the color of a particular part of a picture is represented by three numbers, representing red, green, and blue. So this picture here is blue. So the number for blue is going to be bigger than the number for red and green. So that means that manipulating pictures is about manipulating numbers. And we are really bad at manipulating numbers. So over the last you know, couple of decades, tools have evolved to help us <coughs> manipulate those numbers. So editors and uh, uh, creators of footage use uh, a particular tool for creating a fake blur, or a particular tool for enhancing resolution, or another tool for changing color to generate the effect um, that, that you want to see. Uh, so, Here's that footage again, and that footage was fake. Here is why it was fake. So this is a guy, he was shot in the desert, he's a clean <coughs> And uh, we colored one frame each year, <laughs> and then propagated through the sequence, pushed the colors through the sequence using a, a, 
a mathematical technique uh, involving motion estimation to track those pixels from frame to frame. Now, a person, you couldn't do this this accurately. You need a machine to do the tracking. You need a person to do the painting and a machine to do the tracking. Right? So these things are not possible without machines today, but it's fake. And notice that depending on what I was telling you about what's happened here, I could change the story depending on, on what I say. So in one version of the clean shirt, the guy's running away from a fight and he got away. And in the other version of the story, in a different USB, he was in the fight and he hit the ground and all of his shirt was dirty. He was obviously in that fight. And this could have important ramifications later on. So to, to go even deeper, here is an example of, of the technology that people could use every day. So, and this technology has gone from uh, being priced at tens of thousands of dollars 20 years ago to hundreds of dollars today. So here's some footage, same, um, same hero in the shot with his car in the desert. Um, and uh, we want to try and introduce some three-dimensional elements into the scene, make it more, more fantastical, say. So we know from Father Ted that things far away, small, <laughs> so things, things, when things move around relative to the camera, things far away tend to move small distances and things close up tend to move big distances. So we get a machine to track all the things in our scene and generate a sort of semi-three-dimensional version of the scene. So I cut out these elements. I have a three-dimensional car in this box. And now I could, um, I could kind of go to town here, so use a game engine to synthesize some ball bearings and then drop them into the scene on the car. And then now I could go back into the two-dimensional world. So if you know about photogrammetry, which is a very, very old discipline going back before the 60s, you use a fancy version of that idea and uh, come up with a, a picture like this. So the guy is upset because some ball bearings are dropping. <laughs> Powerful, right? He went from 2D into 3D back into 2D. It's totally believable. And so this is starting to get hard to spot, right? So let's talk a bit about fake spotting. Um, so here's some viral video from uh, 2012, um, where an well, one frame from that video, an eagle appears to snatch a small child and take it a few yards and drop it on the ground. It's sort of believable, sort of, because eagles could pick up, you know, a kilos, a child's a couple of kilos. You know, contextually, it kind of makes sense. Um, but if you think about it, uh, and the physics of light and so on, outside, there's, there's generally one source of light, which is the sun. And um, if we draw a ray from the top of an object, it's shadow. And then all those rays you know, should come from some point, And they should all come from the brush at the same point. So if we do that, we draw a ray from here to here, and then, sorry, from here to here and see where it goes. From this part of the wing of the eagle to here and see where it goes, we end up with this. So you can see, actually, probably, this is a fake because, you know, there seem to be two points of convergence. And in fact, later on, people admitted that this was a fake and it was, you know, a brilliant fake because the quality of the material is kind of grungy, so it was realish and it's contextually believable. So hard to spot. Here's another. Um, picture, and we could use our new tool for spotting whether this is a fake. So, you know, this is the boy, this is the top of his head, and we could draw a line, and we see it comes from one point, looks about right, so this, this must be true. So, I'm going to leave that for a minute. And um, 
say that I haven't said anything about machines <coughs> just yet, but I'm going to you that the only reason we could do this is because machines are helping us do this. So we're past the point where this is possible only through machines. So the impact now of machine learning in the creative disciplines is to start to make these multiple tools disappear and wrap up into one tool or handful of tools, right? So what you find is people using uh, neural nets, not just, not just to maybe create a particular blur, but to create a particular look. So take all of these pixels and munch them up somehow to give me a look that I want, and I don't care how you do it, just make it look good. Uh, this is what these networks are good at. Other people are using things to change expressions on faces, from frowns to smiles and so on. So what's happening is this stuff is getting cheaper, easier to use, it's faster to create these effects, and much more intuitive for the long. So you have to think about what you see when you see things these days in terms of this funny axis of subtlety, context, and quality. You probably need to have some trusted sources of either people or news feeds that you believe in. Um, and certainly, in the future, right now, we have to develop trusted workflows and hardware for people to believe in things that you see on the news and countermeasures that use physical models and even units themselves are important. And people are working on those technologies right now. I'm going to leave you this picture, the same picture we just looked at. Remember, we put the line that came from a particular point. It's totally real, right? Except that was the shot. So it's very clever. You actually put a light in the sky, you shoot it at night, all the shadows make sense, everything makes sense. So it's the fire that was fake, not the people. Very clever. Anyway, so thank you very much. Thank you so much. Just four fabulous presentations. We could have had four four-hour lectures quite happily, uh, but it gives you a taste of... Uh, uh, just the wonderful insights our four speakers bring. I do, however, want to just wrap things up by just saying, I don't, did you pick one of these flyers up when you came in and, and plugging a number of events? So our next Behind the Headlines discussion takes place on the 6th of November. We'll look at the issue of freedom of speech and defamation. Uh, and this is actually part of an event that we're running with our colleagues at the University of Columbia in New York and is part of a symposium on factions, fears, and fake news. So we'll have to get Anil back uh, 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 for that. Um, uh, and obviously, everybody's very welcome at that. Before this, however, we're having a panel discussion here in the Davis on the 23rd of October with the public intellectual and renowned author David uh, Reef, uh, who, along with Cormac O'Groda from, uh, again, a very well-known uh, academic, their discussion is uh, Famine's Futures, a conversation on famine and hunger in the 21st century. So that's on the 23rd. On the 26th of October, we've got our annual Edmund Burke lecture when uh, Professor Margaret Macmillan will talk, Sometimes It Matters Who Is in Power. Again, highly relevant. Um, she's a historian. She's going to be uh, looking at the impact of powerful leaders uh, uh, going back to Lenin, uh, Hitler, Roosevelt, Marx, and Mohammed. So again, I, I think some fascinating uh, insights. That's on the 26th of October. And then finally, just to mention a series, a seminar series that's running all year, actually, called Utopia Dystopia, the Russian Revolution 100 Years On. It's really looking 
at the long-term impact of the Russian Revolution. And there'll be a lecture on the 25th of October in the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, which is kicking that off, and then every month. So it's an action-packed week next week. I'd love to see you on the 23rd, the 25th, the 26th, and the uh, 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 6th of November. Just to remind you, uh, you can register on our website. The podcast from this evening is available on our website. So I simply want to close now by thanking you all for coming. Thank you. so. I think there's about eight events on uh, in Trinity this evening. So it's great so many of you are here. Uh, thank you for your questions. And I'm just sorry we didn't have more time because I know there were a lot of other hands uh, up. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleagues in the Trinity Long Room Hub who work so hard to make these events happen. Uh, and above all, I want to thank our cracking panel for just a fascinating uh, uh, set of presentations. Thank you.